Well, today we are in Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, and we're going to be starting in verse 17. So I'm just going to read this before we get uh, too far into it. And we're going to be looking over the next four weeks at what Luke calls the Sermon on the Plain. Or, you know, it's, it's on a level spot, maybe partway down a mountain. Um, it has a lot of similarities to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, but it's much shorter than the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew. Uh, we find in Luke the same information that's in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, but it's scattered all over the place in Matthew's Gospel. So we'll, we'll hit it here and there. Uh, Luke gives us kind of an abbreviated version here, and... Uh, So it's actually quite easy. It's only a few minutes to read uh, from chapter 17 to the end of the chapter. What that does too is it helps us kind of see the the whole of what Jesus is talking about uh, so that we don't get, you know, too hung up on one or two ideas in isolation from the rest of the sermon. And so uh, let's stand together and I will read Luke chapter 6. Verses 20 to the end of the chapter. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for now you shall be satisfied. Oh, now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High." For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put in your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from bramble bushes. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built, but the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of the house was great. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word to us, and now as we consider this long speech that you gave, the longest one in Luke yet. We ask you to speak to your people. Thank you that you have preserved your word, that you inspired it so that we could be formed and shaped by it, that our hearts and lives would reflect you. And so, Lord, as we hear your word this morning, help us to hear it with the same spirit that wrote it, inspired it, preserved it. In Jesus' name, amen. So what defines success in our culture? Money. Money. What else? Cows. Cows? All right. Let's not start, let's not start fighting this morning. <laughs> Influence. Okay, if you're influential, you're successful. Status, right? Popularity, right? A lot of those things define success for us. If, if we're doing well in life, and what is Jesus doing here then? <laughs> what's, he, what's he up to? Um, and before we get into that, I think we need to kind of remember too kind of the, the, the basic arc of, of the storyline that, that Jesus and, and now we are a part of that Israel was a part of and how things were progressing and what Jesus said just a few weeks ago when we looked at, um, you don't cut off, you know, you don't cut a patch out of your new pair of jeans to put it on the old one and you don't put new wine into old wineskins or both of them are ruined. I'm doing something so new that it's not compatible with the old. So let's get kind of a broad view of what maybe that old thing was. Back in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. <laughs> We'll go right back to the beginning. And he set it up so that humanity could be in personal relationship with him all the time. And, and that was the point. The, and he, 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 he made this beautiful, if you will, uh, temple. And, and, and he placed in the center of that the image of God. 
humanity, to reflect his glory, to work with him, uh, to, to, to co-create with him, to, to make the world that he created a more and more beautiful and orderly place. But humanity said, I think we can do better than that and tried to take control of the situation and tried to grow beyond what God had set out for them. And so they took of the knowledge of the good and evil and everything started falling apart. And from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, you see one storyline of just the, the spiral downward that ends at the Tower of Babel. And God scatters humanity and then he calls Abraham. And he calls Abraham because he says, I, I am going to restore all of creation and every nation, even though I've just scattered them through this, this language barrier between people, I am going to reunite them. And it will be through the family and the people of Abraham. And so he calls Abraham and says to him, leave your land and your country, go to the land that I will show you. And I'll make your name great and your people great and I will bless you and all the nations will find their blessing in you. So Abraham goes and he starts this journey with God and he comes to this promised land but it's not quite time yet and he ends up passing through it and ends up in Egypt and whole series of mistakes and stuff and then he's back to the promised land and then he's, at the end of it, it's just him and one son, and he goes, what's the promise about? And God says, well, the promise is beyond even your one son because I'm gonna ask you to sacrifice him so that you really trust that it's me who's doing this and it's not through you. And so Abraham goes through that and in Genesis chapter 22, we get this beautiful picture of God saying, you haven't held back even your own son from me Everything that I've ever promised you is going to come true. And within a few chapters, and more story and more family dysfunction and more human failing, we have 12 sons of Israel. But things aren't all good yet either because the 12 sons are fairly dysfunctional and they end up in Egypt, 72 of them. And these two numbers are important because we'll see them in Luke coming up. Well, we've already seen the 12, and we're going to see the 72 in a few chapters. They're in Egypt, and they're doing well, and they're prospering, and they're, they're multiplying, but they're in the wrong land. They're not in the land of promise. And so God orchestrates it, and through Moses, he leads them back to the promised land, and he gives them a beautiful covenant, a covenant of relationship. He says, don't you see how I've rescued you? I brought you to myself. I've carried you on eagle's wings, and I brought you to me. Therefore, here is the covenant, the, the, the contract that we're going to make so that we can live together in harmony. And part of that contract, if you boil it all down, it comes down to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We're going to see how that impacts Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It comes through phrase after phrase. But he also announces near the end, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, if you follow and you live within this covenant, you're going to have a blessed life. You know, your, your flocks and your herds are going to flourish, cows. 
You're going to do well. Your enemies won't won't be able to take anything from you. And and you're just going to have a a marvelously blessed life so that you, you as a nation can then show the world what it means to live in relationship with me. But if you get off track, then everything's going to fall apart. And your life's going to be horrible, and your cattle are going to suffer. <laughs> and on and on it goes. And it, actually, the, the, the curses in 26 and 20, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, are, are just horrible. And it's life completely undone, back to chaos. Back to, like, the swirling waters of darkness in Genesis 1, verse 2. It all comes undone. So this is an interesting thing, isn't it? Here is God saying, if you follow me, and if you're called by my name, I will, and, and you walk in obedience to me, I'll bless you like crazy. But if you don't, here's how bad it's going to get. And now here's Jesus saying, life is bad, well, you're blessed. What? This is upside down and backwards. Oh, and if you're doing really well, watch out. So what's Jesus doing here? Why is he turning this upside down, inside out, and backwards? We'll get to that. If you keep reading in the Old Testament, you'll come across things like the book of Proverbs, where where the book of Proverbs is teaching young men how to live so that they can prosper in life and and, and get ahead and be be, uh, well thought of. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and wisdom just leads to prosperity and blessing from God. But then you've got the book of Job, who God says right at the very beginning, have you considered Job my servant? He's... There is no one like him, and yet he suffers horribly. Then you get the book of Ecclesiastes, which kind of says, well, life kind of sucks, so eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. (laughs) It's rough, and when you die, nobody's going to remember you. Like in 30 years, are people going to remember you? 40 years, 50 years, 200 years. People still going to be talking about us? Not many of us. And so even in the Old Testament, there's this tension. What does it mean to be blessed by God? Because Job, here's a righteous man, and yet he suffers horribly. And and there's all these tensions. And I think this is what Jesus is kind of leading us to, is is part of the problem that was happening, we get to first century Judaism, the, the situation that Jesus was living in, teaching in, walking in, was they had such a, an expectation that when the Messiah comes, he's going to turn things around because right now we are enslaved and we are oppressed and we are the poor and we are all these things that Jesus talks about in the first few verses of this sermon. And God's going to restore us to being rich and influential and a power and Rome is going to suffer and we will then take charge of everything and we'll be able to mandate the morality of our culture through being in power. That's the expectation and hope. And Jesus says, that's not going to happen under my watch. That's not the way of the kingdom of God. It's upside down. So he's turning this around because he has to combat The thinking that if I'm blessed, it means that I have done well with God. Or I'm obedient because 
So, so, so it starts at the results and then assumes the conditions it took to get there. It says, I'm rich, I'm happy, I'm well-fed, I'm influential in society, therefore, I must be walking in obedience to God and all that he says and has done. Or, the opposite, you're poor, you're sick, you're hungry, it's your fault for not obeying God. That's the thinking that happens when we get the order mixed up. Because Job suffered, he didn't do anything wrong. Over and over the text says he didn't even sin in stuff that he said. So Jesus is inverting the expectations on what it means to be successful and what it means to have a blessed life. Now, something we need to remember when we look at this is that Jesus is speaking specifically to his disciples. If we go back in the first few parts of this chapter, the introduction that Luke gives us, he gives us a, a, a <clears throat> Jesus comes down from the mountain with the 12 to a level place with the great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. This is kind of the, the biggest net that he could cast at this time. And Tyre and Sidon were Greek uh, cities as well, and it's potential that you have what, what really is happening here is it's kind of like Luke is saying, this is kind of like an Exodus moment. If we go back to Exodus chapter 12, verses 37 to 39, we see that when the people of Israel were rescued, when they were redeemed, when they were released from captivity, there was the 12 tribes of Israel, but there was also a mixed multitude of additional people that attached themselves to Israel. It wasn't just pure Israelite. There's this mixed multitude. And Jesus here, over the last number of chapters, we've seen him healing, releasing people from uh, spiritual bondage, and he has drawn them to himself. And this is kind of like Luke 4, 18 to 19, fulfilled even more and more. I've come to preach good news to the poor, right? Proclaim liberty to captives, recovery of sight for the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this is what it's going to look like. The poor will inherit the kingdom. The hungry will be satisfied. Those who weep will laugh. And those who are hated, excluded, reviled, and spurned will have a great reward in heaven. So this is what it looks like in Jesus' kingdom. It's upside down. It's backwards from what they're expecting. And remember, as we move through this, that it was hard for the disciples to grasp this, even until after the resurrection. Right? At the, at the end of the story, after the resurrection, a couple of disciples are walking to Emmaus and they're downcast and Jesus comes and talks to them and, and they're like, we thought this guy was gonna rescue us and deliver us, but he's dead a failure. It's a bust. We're going home. It's over. See, they still didn't quite get what Jesus was pointing to. It's a different kind of kingdom. And that's what this whole sermon on the level is all about. So if we take a look at this, you'll notice that there's kind of four blessings and there's four woes and they're paralleled, right? The first one, blessed are the poor, woe to the rich. 
Blessed, to the, blessed are the hungry. Woe to those who are full. Blessed are those who weep. Woe to those who laugh. Woe, uh, blessed are those when people hate you, exclude you, revile you, spurn you. Woe to those when all people speak well of you. And so there's balance here and there's a contrast. This is very different. Matthew doesn't have this kind of thing in his Beatitudes. But what we have to realize here too is that this isn't talking about different, four different groups of people. This is a picture, one portrait on both sides. There's two kinds of people throughout this chapter and throughout this sermon. The whole sermon defines that there are two kinds of people. There are those who build their houses on sand and those who build on solid rock of Jesus' teaching, who live it out. And the whole sermon is focused on that reality. The conclusion and the introduction go together. We can't miss the connections here. The whole focus is on aligning with Jesus and his value and then living in obedience to him because a sustained obedience secures a satisfied life. A sustained obedience secures a satisfied life. That's the end of the, end of the chapter, verses 46 to 49. Second thing we can see is that a fruitful life comes out of a faithful life in 43 to 45 in Jesus' metaphor of the fruit trees. But over all of this is that this one thought is that how we love is how we thrive. How we love others is how we thrive. And that's verse 27 all the way through to 42 is the main focus. And so as we see this here, there's this one portrait. There's a now and then perspective, but there's a center point on which the blessings and the woes pivot. And that is this phrase, on account of the Son of Man. On account of the Son of Man, and there's the conclusion, for so their fathers did to the prophets, for so their fathers did to the false prophets, and those are the two things that I think bring clarity to the, this whole balance because it's not just if you're poor, if you're just financially in need, you're automatically blessed or if you're hungry, you will automatically be well fed by God. Um, that's, it's, it's not a generalization for these things. And same, it is, it is kind of an overgeneralization for the rich, the full and those who laugh but you've kind of got two pictures here of two different groups of people. In Mary's song, we see that in her song, back in Luke chapter one, verses 46 to 55, she celebrates the fact that when the victory of God comes, the poor will be blessed, the hungry will be fed, and our enemies will be defeated. Zechariah's song says very much the same thing. If we think about the, the, the blessed poor and all of this at the beginning on account of the Son of Man, it's really that these people are dependent on God because for them, life is out of control and they need to look to the future of what God will do. For those who are, are, are being addressed with the woes, and remember, these are disciples of Jesus, he lifts his eyes to his disciples amongst that mixed multitude. This is a message for disciples, people who have already said, we will follow Jesus. This isn't a blanket open statement. This is disciples of Jesus. 
for those who are rich and full and laugh now and who enjoy influence and, and prosperity and comfort, warning to you. A, wo- a woe is not a curse. It's a warning, though, because the greatest temptation we can have is that we have made our own lives and we're in control. Uh, John Howard Yoder, in his book Radical Discipleships, says a person must have a goal in life. Because it seeks security apart from God, wealth makes one of the strongest claims to replace God as the goal. And so it can trip us up. And this is a constant theme that kind of resonates through Luke. We'll see it again when we get to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We'll see it over and over again. It's one of the key themes in Luke's gospel and all through Acts. But there's this pivot point that we can't miss on account of the Son of Man. It is not that these people who are poor, hungry, weeping, scorned, excluded, reviled, spurned, are, are, are that because of the social economic situation that they find themselves in. It is because they have aligned themselves with Jesus Christ. That's a very important distinction. It is because of their relationship to Jesus and nothing else on account of the Son of Man. That is a center point. Because as as we will see, as we go through the book of Luke and into Acts, it's not that all followers of Jesus are poor and hungry, weeping and stuff like that. We've got Acts 2, 42 to 45, where it's like people are selling some of their goods and they're helping one another out and they're eating together daily in their homes and they're enjoying fellowship and influence with people. And later on, we've got Barnabas who sells a piece of property and brings it to the apostles' feet and he's a blessed guy. You know, you get Ananias and Sapphira who lie about stuff and that doesn't go so well. You've got... You've got um, uh, what's her name again? Uh, well, there's Lydia, yet yeah, later on in Paul's ministry. But even in, in Luke's gospel in chapter 8, he lists a number of women who accompany Jesus. And one of them uh, is uh, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their own means. And so we have women who are, are wealthy and, and well-supplied and they're helping out Jesus and the disciples as they're traveling around. And so wealth isn't the problem. Wealth isn't the problem. It's never the problem. It's when it takes place of, on account of the Son of Man. See, in our Western consumeristic, individualistic society, our values of comfort, convenience, entertainment, and reputation easily take the place of standing for the Son of Man. Right? Because we love our comfort. We love the fact that we, you know, we can still get oranges in December in Canada. You know, we'd go nuts if we couldn't get mandarin oranges for Christmas to put in the stockings, right? And we're so used to it. I remember years ago talking to somebody from Romania and she said, I just going to the supermarket is just overwhelming here because there's so many choices. I mean, in Romania, we go to the store, you want peanut butter? There's peanut butter. 
Not like low salt, low fat, smooth craft versus no-name brand versus Jiffy versus 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 versus. It's like just buying peanut butter was stressful. Bread, you want bread? Here's a loaf of bread. Not like a bazillion different kinds of bread. Oh, my goodness. I'm sure somebody close to you can make it, though. <laughs> but we love the convenience, right? Hey, who's gone to Extra Foods in the last week? Isn't it annoying that things are moved around? It's like, oh, it's taking forever now. It's like taking me five minutes longer, right? Why do they have to move stuff around? Right? I mean, we love our predictable, comfortable, convenient life. Jesus is saying, if you're going to come after me, it's going to not be so convenient. You can't follow me when it's convenient for you. We'll get this later as, as Jesus develops this. It's like, unless you pick up your cross daily and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you hate your wife, your family, you cannot be my disciple. Now it's an exaggeration, but the point is there. The relationship to me must trump every relationship in your life. You must love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the bottom line. That's what Jesus is pushing us toward in this. This is the foundation. This is kind of the characteristic of the heart that we all need to have. Is if, 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 you're stuck on, if you're stuck on wealth and happiness and being full now and being spoken well of by people, then you're going to have a lot more trouble with the rest of the sermon. Where Jesus says, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Really? Like, remember, we are talking about a people group that Jesus is talking to. His disciples aren't coming from the upper ranks. Those upper ranks have already said, we need to get rid of this guy. He is dangerous, we need to kill him. His followers are coming from the, the people who were being taxed to death. Up to 30 to 40% of their income is going to Rome. They're having a hard time making ends meet. Roman soldiers walking along, sees you by the roadside. He can just grab you and say, here's my gear, carry it with me. You carry it and I'll beat you senseless if you don't. They're under extreme pressure. And their own people, like a guy like Matthew, are taxing them as well. These are the poor and the hungry and those who are weeping. They're longing for the consolation of Israel. They're waiting for the Messiah to release them from all this stuff and the pain of their life. Now Jesus is saying, in the midst of all that, you can be blessed because the source of your joy is not your circumstances, but the presence of me in your life. 
on the account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Really? How many of us would do that? Like, like, and, and even if it was just verse 22 that this refers to, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, when they spurn you, when they're attacking you emotionally and socially excluding you and verbally abusing you and attacking your character on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. You need a different perspective. It's not life here that is the source of your joy, but the source of joy that is absolutely solid in relationship with God. It's, it's, we need to look beyond the here and now. There is a here and now part. Yours is the kingdom of God present. For you shall be satisfied future. For you shall laugh future. For your reward is great in heaven future. The source of your joy is not in the circumstances that you're living in right now, but in the presence of God himself. And Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am sending the comforter who will be with you always, and he'll bring to mind everything that I have taught you, and he will be with you, and no one can snatch you out of my hand, and there's nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is the source of our joy, no matter what is going on in our lives. The focus here is on aligning with Jesus and his values and living in obedience to it. And then we have to remember how Jesus fulfilled these same things, how he was these things. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. <clears throat> As, as Paul's encouraging the Corinthian church into generosity with their finances, he says this. He uses Jesus as the example. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He who is rich became poor so that we might become rich. And it's almost the same as what he said just, just a few verses earlier in chapter 5. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he gives up his riches as the son of God and he comes in poverty so that by his poverty we might become rich. And we saw that in Luke chapter two when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to be dedicated at the temple. They bring the offering of two turtle doves and a pigeon because that's the poverty level of giving when you dedicate a child. He grows up in abject poverty. But he's the king and the creator of all. Jesus gives up his riches for us. Jesus Christ experienced hunger to provide our fullness. Jesus Christ wept for our sinful rebellion Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate rejection for our salvation. He was the ultimate poor, the ultimate hungry one, the ultimate man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. He ultimately lives this out for us and shows us what it means to live this blessed life 